I, 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 you know, um, I'll say American Pie. My, my Miss American Pie went to the... Okay, Eric, so it's beautiful. There what, we go. What's See, wrong with you? This is why you don't want me... I mean, I'll be on that front line podcasting, but not singing. <laughs> Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. When all of their stories are pieced together, they form a Mosaic of China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. Firstly, in case you haven't already, please do join the groups on Facebook and Instagram. You can find them under the username Mosaic of China, no spaces. And for WeChat, please send me a note directly on my username, Oscar10877, and I'll add you to that group myself. Thanks to everyone who commented on all the photos that I posted from last week's interview with Maple. The photo of the beautiful lake in Tibet seems to have got the most attention. And I did hear from many of you that I forgot to explain Xiangsheng in my outro. Sorry about that, I totally missed it out. Maple brought it up. Uh, it's sometimes translated as crosstalk, in which usually two performers act out a dialogue between them, and it's full of comedic puns in Chinese. It reminds me a little bit about Rakugo uh, in Japanese because somehow I always need to talk about Japan in this China podcast. Anyway, both those art forms are similar to Western stand-up comedy, but as Maple pointed out, they're not personal, they're heavily scripted um, and rehearsed, and most of the comedy just comes from wordplay, nothing else. Anyway, today's um, episode is with Eric Olander. Eric has been a journalist in China off and on since 1989. His most recent incarnation has been with the China Africa Project, which he explains about early in the podcast. But you'll quite quickly hear afterwards that his knowledge goes way beyond this niche area. He talks very eloquently about journalism issues in general, such as bias, censorship, his relationship with the public online and the relationship between officials and the online media, including the way in which China's soft power is being felt in places like Africa and beyond. Since Eric has so many interesting things to say, it was very difficult to keep the interview short, so apologies for going a bit long on this episode. I hope you'll agree that it was worth the few extra minutes. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I know it's a busy time, so I appreciate your time today. Um, Eric is the co-founder of the China Africa Project, um, and you've been in China now on and off for how many years? Since 1989. I started studying Chinese in 1985, long before most of your audience was even born, <laughs> long before Chinese was cool and hip. You know, there were no skinny white people walking through the French concession back when I was here the first time. It was rough and tumble. There's no doubt about it. And so for me, the journey from the 1980s till today uh, has been just an, uh, you know, I feel like it's been an honor and a privilege for me to, to have, to have the, the opportunity of seeing this. This journey that they've gone on from being one of the poorest countries in the world in the 80s to now being the second largest economy in the world is remarkable. And when you, you see that trajectory... Uh, I walk around Shanghai and Beijing just, you know, mouth agape all the time going, I remember when this was nothing. Well, before we go too far down that road, what is your object that you've bought today? So my object is my moleskin book. It's right. a, one of those notebooks. Now, it doesn't have to be a, a branded book, but it's just it's a notepad. And for me, as a, as a recovering journalist and still a journalist, uh, but also as someone who is hopelessly neurotic with lists, it's how I organize and structure my life. It's how I keep things kind of going forward. It's how I keep my head clear. Um, I find that even in this digital world, and I'm extraordinarily digitally oriented, uh, so I am connected to everything, uh, being analog uh, is to me far more effective in many ways. 
uh, in terms of getting ideas out of my brain and into, you know, into the real world, uh, they go on paper first oftentimes and lists and things like that. So, so my, my object is, is that notebook and you will almost never see me without it. And this is, this is what iteration of this book? How many of these books do you have at home now? Hundreds now. Because this is something that I actually started way back as a teenager of making my to-do list for the next day before I go to bed. That was, a, that was a habit I picked up, and it was a habit that I was not taught. I just started doing it. And, and there's something nice about actually physically crossing it out with your pen when yeah, you've done it, right? Exactly. And there's something therapeutic about writing it out. Mm. Now, I have Evernote online, and I do a lot of that task and list-based stuff on Evernote, but it's different than writing on a pen. And even, I don't use just normal pens. I use fountain pens. Mm. I mean, really old school. But, you know, those cheap kind of fountain pens that European students use in school. But it is part of this just kind of aesthetic of being connected in the old and the new, the analog and the digital. And I think both are important. Well, that's great. And tell me, how does this pad then relate to what you do on a day-to-day basis today? So now you've caught me at a really exciting time in my life because I'm finishing up here in China uh, with WPP Advertising where I was working at the... I mean, really, when you work here in advertising and marketing, it is at the highest level. I mean, there is no bigger stage than China today. I mean, New York is definitely a big stage, but pretty much New York and Shanghai are as big as it gets. Uh, so it's been just an amazing two years, just wonderful opportunity. It came to an end sooner than I had planned, but that is life, right? And so confronted with what to do next, uh, I started to kind of go down the normal path and start talking to people about jobs. And people were looking at me in a very odd way. They said, what is somebody with, you know, one, 1.2 million followers coming and looking for a normal job when people with a thousand followers all think they're going to be the next, you know, KOL star? And so I was guided, you know, through the universe kind of talking to me saying, you know, go out into the world and see if you can kind of leverage this platform to do exciting things with it. So now with this notepad is filled with new designs for websites, new business strategies for email newsletters, and together with my partner in South Africa, Kobus van Staden, who I launched the China Africa project with 10 years ago, uh, we're launching a new premium service of daily emails, of working with writers in China, in Africa, and around the world to contribute really amazing content. And if this is a space that's interesting for you and you need it for your work or to better understand the world, what we're going to be doing is absolutely essential. Well, great. Tell me then, what is the China Africa Project? So the China Africa Project is an independent, nonpartisan, multimedia website. We are entirely self-funded. This was a passion project of ours for the past 10 years. Uh, and we, we just were interested. And in, my background's in China, but I moved to Africa in the mid-2000s. And I saw the rise of the Chinese in Africa in a dramatic fashion. Uh, in the mid-2000s when I went, there was virtually no Chinese presence. And by seven, eight, and nine, it just, poof. And what I was seeing out there was these narratives in Western media from the UK and from the United States predominantly of China's colonizing Africa, China's taking over Africa. And then I would ask my friends, employees, and colleagues uh, on the ground in Kinshasa, where I was living at the time, I said, what do you think? And they gave me these very complex, nuanced, textured answers. answers. And I thought, that's the story. And the, the West narrative, which still is prevalent today about China, China is a very, very provocative issue for people on the outside. It's either good or it's bad. And for the most part, 90 some odd percent of the coverage of China is cynical or negative. 
Uh, not all of it. I mean, there's there's good reasons for that. So I don't actually want to get into that. But I just was seeing a very, very complicated story that wasn't being reflected. And that's where I decided I'm going to start writing, blogging, and eventually podcasting. And Cobus joined me for the journey. So we explore every facet of China's engagement in Africa, social, political, cultural, economic, doesn't matter. If it's related, we do it. And we've built up uh, a lot of audience because people seem to really value the impartiality that we bring. We're not advocating for a company, a culture, or uh, a country. And that's really, really important. Even though he's South African and I'm American, we're both white guys, we really, really are passionate about taking that middle ground. And tell me, like, there are so many topics that you, you approach Africa from, from the politics side, from the economy, from the culture. Give us a few examples of what, what you've seen in terms of the Chinese impact and the Chinese influence and, I guess, just any Chinese stories in Africa. Yeah, so we could spend the next two hours of this podcast. We wouldn't bore your listeners with that. But we could spend, you know, the next two hours and I could sit here and tell you that China is the best thing that's ever happened to Africa. It has brought infrastructure, it's brought telecommunications, it's brought trade. And what it's done is it's liberated Africa from being dependent exclusively on Western colonial powers, which was a story that has been a hangover for the past 50, 60 years since the end of colonization. And, and China brought choice to Africans that they didn't have to take uh, what France was saying or what the British were saying or what the Americans were saying, and they could have those options. That's very, very powerful. Even when they were being like quite benevolent, there just was no choice. There right? was just no choice. Now there's a choice, and choice is a really empowering thing. And it gives agency and it gives confidence and, and it's really very, very important. The, but I could also sit here and I can tell you that China is the worst thing that's ever happened to Africa. And everything that I would say would be 100% true. Just like with everything that's great about it would be true, everything that's bad about it would be true. The mechanization of resource extraction is on a level that the French and the Belgians could have never have dreamed of. The arrival of Chinese uh, vendors is both a blessing and a curse. If you are a producer, you now have to match the China price. The same problem that we're facing in the U.S. and Europe is confronting Africans. If you're a consumer, you love it because you have competition in the marketplace. They're breaking the stranglehold of local producers who for decades choked off competition. Now the Chinese come in and said, we'll sell that pot, that pan, whatever it is, at a fraction of the price. That's great for producers. So there are benefits on all sides. The thing that I walk away with from this relationship is if you hear anybody say, it's either good or either bad. They're missing a big part of the story because it's both and. Wow, I, I see now why you have your own podcast on this topic. <laughs> Again, I could talk for two hours and I won't bore your audience with that, but that is something, it's still 10 years later, it's still something that fascinates me. Well, it, it, it is fascinating, especially with how you've positioned yourself as being in the middle. Mm. Um, and I guess that, that leads me to ask you, you know, how, how do you go about interviewing um, officialdom, not just in China, I suppose, on both sides of, of this equation? And it's even beyond officialdom because coming at this as a white American male and race and gender and identity are really important in this because those are issues that affect the storytelling and affect the perceptions of how stories are told. And I have to be very, very conscious of, of my privilege. I'm conscious of my status. I'm conscious of who I am. And my goal is to step back in the process. My goal is not to make me the center of anything. My goal is to make the people that we interview and the feature and the voices that we're bringing up into the podcast and on the website and into the circle of this discussion, they are the ones that we really want to bring out. And so I don't have a confrontational style in my interview uh, method. 
I, I have a style where I really want to try and allow you to speak. And now that pleases some people. And other people say, well, you should have been much tougher on this Huawei spokesman or this government spokesman. And because you did not ask those gotcha questions, you are therefore revealing your biases. And, and that's very interesting because in these very hyper-partisan times, people will take one show or one tweet or one kind of piece of comment and then they will extrapolate that across your whole professional background. And I resist that. And this is the beauty of the fact that I don't depend on anybody for anything. This is self-funded and we do this because we love it. So people, some people are happy and some people are not, but because we are independent, we just keep doing what we think is right. And what we think is right is to stay in the middle, to not take a side, to really be impartial and to bring as many voices as possible to the debate. You hit upon something which made me think, um, something I heard recently on the news was there was an argument that all news organizations should be decoupled from the commercial angle, just like what you've described. And that actually media organizations, be it TV shows, be it magazines, newspapers, they actually all should be like non-governmental organizations, charities almost. Like, do you see now with all of this like fake news nonsense, all of this like partisan politics coming into what should be very non-partisan mediums. Do you see that there's a solution apart from people like you? No, I used to run the largest uh, business news channel in Vietnam. I was the first foreigner to ever run a news uh, organization in Vietnam. And the first response that you get from people who come and visit, they say, wow, the censorship must be terrible. And in Vietnam, just like in China, there is political censorship on content. And I say to them, and they always get very surprised, that I have spent now 25 years working at CNN, AP, BBC, France 24, all over the world in most of the world's major media organizations. And in every case, I have encountered censorship. I've encountered censorship in uh, the United States, where it's predominantly corporate censorship, so it's commercial. That is, at CNN, we never covered uh, critical stories of our main advertisers. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. So the tobacco industry, when I was there in the mid-90s, was under massive scrutiny. CNN stayed away from that story. Only until Congress started to investigate it did CNN go in. Why? Because RJR Reynolds, which was a big consumer product company, did a lot of business with Turner Broadcasting. They did not want to jeopardize those advertising relationships. You will never see a local TV station in the United States do an investigation on used car sales because used cars are a massive advertiser. It's just the nature of the way it is. In France, when I was the editor-in-chief of France 24, the, the, the censorship and the bias there uh, was cultural. So they will cover Francophone African countries at the expense of Anglophone African countries. Day-to-day -day decisions are made based on the linguistic and cultural leanings of a country. I was in editorial meetings where we had decisions about do we send crews to Zambia or to Cameroon? And I lost the discussion sending crews to Zambia and then afterwards they say, well, of course, because Cameroon's a Francophone country. That's a form of censorship in my world. Um, Government-run media, Voice of America, uh, you know, they're not independent either. So the point is that after a career of working in these news organizations, I have yet to find one that is impartial. And this, this fantastical idea that non-governmental organizations are somehow impartial too is just offensive and ridiculous too. They are actors in the political space like anybody else. And I think that one of the things that I've noticed of covering Africa for so long and covering South Asia and whatnot is that we give NGOs a pass. 
as if there's some kind of saints that are that are they're out there raising money they're out they have agendas and whatnot we need to treat them like we treat any other actor in the space they are not immune from these biases and from from being misled or whatever they 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 do good work but that who cares they are actors with agendas we need to treat them as such and so you touched upon um, there when you had people giving you a hard time for not asking the right question, or that one example you mm. gave. It made me think about actually how you now manage the, the news um, landscape in this day of feedback, like immediate feedback on social media. Give me, g- give me like your everyday about how you, you manage social media. There's, there's two things that I do. If they are respectful, I, I will engage them. So anybody who is who, who doesn't agree, I don't want people who just agree with me. In fact, I live for the discussions and for people who are on different sides. And my goal is not necessarily to persuade you. That is not my goal. It's to make you make to, for me to be right and for you to be wrong. My goal is to present facts and evidence and reason behind why I think it's this way. And then you can decide for yourself whether or not you agree. And at the end of this discussion, if there is civility in it and it's like I enjoyed that, then it's great. As soon as the F-bombs, S-bombs, as soon as anything comes out, you automatically get muted in my world. And it's just, you're gone. I don't, I don't, I disengage. I don't pay any attention. I have too many people to talk to and to engage with that I just, I don't waste my time with that. And it's not serious. And also, this has to be fun and enjoyable. And when people start kind of hurling those kind of personal missives your way, it, it's not fun and pleasant. I don't mind. It hurts when people say that you know, you're a bad interviewer or you're a bad this, but that's okay. That's good because I like the fact that they're listening and they're engaged. Um, You know, fortunately, I don't get too much of that negative, but it does come up. Uh, And I just classify it as if it's civil and if it's relevant, then it's okay. If it's uncivil and it's not relevant, then it's very easy on social media just to go, boop, you're muted. And I don't see that anymore. And I guess because you have, it's an English language podcast, you're going to get lots of English language um, comments. Do you get some Chinese people who are commenting? Do, do they have a different quality, a different timbre to, to their comments that they put? Yeah, they do. In terms of how the Chinese interact with the outside world, it's very, very interesting. And, and I don't actually think the Chinese in this sense are that much different than the average American. The average American's awareness of the outside world is actually quite low as well for different reasons. In the United States, people have access to the information. People here simply don't have access. So I find that when I have a discussion with a Chinese person about U.S.-China relations, China-Africa relations, oftentimes they're coming to that discussion with about 20% of the information that we have available. They just have not been exposed to the level of detail that we have and to the complexity of the narrative that we have. So there's a lot of confusion, and it's one of the reasons why Chinese stakeholders will often go from zero to pissed off very, very fast because they don't have the data tools to respond to these types of arguments. And we'll start saying, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And they can't respond. So then it ends up oftentimes leading to, okay, well, then you just don't like China. And that happens a lot. I don't think that's a productive outcome of a, discom- of a conversation, which is one of the reasons why people who have lived here for a long time and know kind of the, the information ecosystem that they're working, win- working within have an ability to kind of navigate that to try and extract out more rather than people who just come off the boat start kind of peppering the Chinese with answers and they run into that wall very, very quickly. So uh, on, as an extension to that, is there a, a certain way that you would ask questions to a Chinese official that you perhaps wouldn't do to others or is it basically the well, same? Well, first and foremost, Chinese officials don't engage with foreign media. 
it just doesn't happen. Now, it used to be that Chinese scholars and think tanks uh, would engage with foreign media, but now that's been cut off too. Uh, there is no incentive whatsoever for a Chinese scholar to, to talk to me or to talk to a journalist. Unlike in the United States or in the West, where oftentimes scholars want to become more famous and well-known, and that drives speaking and drives a lot of different things that are in their benefit, here it's only lose-lose for them. If they say something that is wrong and out of line with what the party line is, uh, their careers could be over. I'm very, very sympathetic to the individual who has to make that decision because at the end of the day, he or she has a family to feed, and has a career to advance, and I understand that. I'm disappointed, though, because the Chinese voice is often missing from the discussion. So it's one of the reasons why the Chinese get such bad press around the world is simply they don't participate in the discussion. Now, I thought, though, the Chinese were starting to recognize this and starting to work out, yes, we need to work on our soft power approach, not just our hard power approach. It sounds, from what you're saying, that they're taking a step back from that now. No, soft power is a very complicated thing, and it's manifested in many, many different ways. However, there are new forms of soft power that are coming out. So when you talk to young Africans, 16, 17, 18, and you say, what do you think of China? And they pull out their Huawei phone or they talk about Boomplay, which is the, the, the Spotify for Africa, or they talk about Star Times, which is the uh, pay TV service. These are all Chinese brands. And their world is shaped by technology, by gadgets, by the content that comes through those channels. And a lot of that is Chinese. Musical.ly, for example, is a, is a Chinese brand you know, from ByteDance. It's in the United States. Now, people don't necessarily know that that's a Chinese thing. But, you know, the, 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 but there's starting to be some awareness now, as particularly with Techno, which is the largest phone company in, in Africa, that these are Chinese brands. And they've brought high-quality products at a low price and have been able to connect hundreds of millions of people that were once not connected. That is a form of soft power. The other very quick thing on soft power, we in the West discount infrastructure as power. We take for granted that there's a road in our neighborhood. We take for granted that there's a bridge, a hospital, an airport, whatever. In the United States, less and less. I mean, our infrastructure sucks. So, But in Europe, it's great infrastructure. But when Africans come over to Shanghai and they see what's been built here in their lifetimes, that is inspiring, it's motivating, and it's very, very powerful. People are impressed. They, they, don't, they don't do that with the United States or or France, or Spain, because they've had it for a long time. This is 35, 40 years old. They say, if the Chinese were as poor as we were in my lifetime, and they did it, it can be done. It's an, insp it's an inspirational story. So that's another form of soft power that people don't think of. So we come to the end of, of the first part of this conversation, but I guess my last question would be a, a crazy one, which I don't know how you're going to answer, but what would you predict then? Uh, what would you predict about what's going to happen in, in Africa in the next five, let's say 10 years when it comes to China's influence? So Africa is staring down the barrel of a gun. And this is probably, and it's interesting because it's the, a similar gun that the Chinese are staring down the same barrel. So if you think of it as a, and it's the demographic barrel. China here is staring down the idea that in 10 to 15 years, their old population is going to crush their young population. And this is, you know, there's the saying that China is going to get old before it gets rich. Now, Africa is the opposite problem. Africa is a, a traditional period, period, pyramid. It's a continent of 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds. Well, what do 23-year-olds do? 
they get busy and they have babies. So they're now in the next 10 years facing down a, three, a surging population of 300 million new mouths to feed. And they have to industrialize and employ and really create societies that are engaging for these young people that are coming up. This huge population. Africa is going to face the brunt of climate change disproportionately. Already it is. South Africa was on the verge of running out of water, not just Cape Town, but the entire country. The deserts are spreading faster in Africa than they are anywhere else. The heat is, is the, the, the extremes in heat. Uh, climate change is going to wreak havoc in many parts of Africa. So that's another reason why this infrastructure has to be built as a buffer against, uh, as against the, the changing climate. So both are racing against time, but for different reasons. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of African leaders have turned to the Chinese for loans and for infrastructure and for you know, support because no one else is lining up to give them this money. The West will talk a great game about human rights and don't take the Chinese money and debt sustainability and all of this, but they're not willing to build the ports, the roads, the freeways, the highways, the hospitals, the, the special economic zones. And so, so again, we can, we can hear from the West all of those pleasantries, but at the end of the day, they're not set lining up to give the money the Chinese are. So I think that this is a very important calculated risk that, the, that African leaders are making now. It's a gamble. It's a risk. But because they've got that population bulge that is coming, they've got to do something about it. Very good. And I'm very conscious that I'm saying Africa is a huge generalization. 55 I mean, countries. I know. I mean, lots terrible. of people. I mean, you're, you're talking from Cairo to Cape Town and everything in between. The diversity. And by the way, the same applies to China. This is, you know, I always say that this is not a, a single country. This is a thousand countries, you know. And they say it's a civilization posing as a country. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Mm. Uh, so the diversity in this country is also... Uh, misleading in many respects. And this is not a single actor when we're talking about the Chinese. Chinese provinces are engaging in Africa, Chinese government, Chinese corporations, Chinese state-owned enterprises, migrants. It's happening on so many different levels. So I think that's, again, these are shorthand words for very complex ideas. Let's jump into part two. Uh-oh. Lightning round. The lightning round. You can answer as quickly as you can or you can take your time. It's up to you. So question one. What is your favorite China-related fact? $24 billion. A billion dollars every hour on Double Eleven sold by Tmall and Alibaba on November 11th on that sale. Think about it. 24, now I think last year was like 26 billion, more than a billion dollars an hour. Incredible. So just to explain that, it's November the 11th every year. Explain what happens in China. So what they do is they, they created this uh, anti-Valentine's Day. So it was, it was Singles Day, and so they picked November 11th because it's sticks, you know, representing single people. And Alibaba, the world's largest e-commerce company, started just discounting products. And they created this phenomenal type of, uh, of culture around selling. And so everybody, all the brands line up. The whole country becomes like a national holiday. So basically take Black Friday, Black Monday, Cyber Monday, all of those kind of sales and put it on, you know, on steroids. And this is compact into just one 24-hour period. They're selling more in volume than all of the Christmas holiday shopping season in the United States. It's remarkable. $24 billion, and it just keeps going up every year. Mm. Amazing. Do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese? In Chinese, there is a saying, uh, they have these things called chengyu. And chengyu mm. are the kind of, this is how... 
if you are a highly educated Chinese person, you will, and maybe even kind of middle, but an educated person, you will speak in these idioms and these phrases that, and Chinese is a, is a beautiful language for that because it can mean so many different things and you can get a very complex idea into just two to four characters, normally four characters. So they have one called Yang Er Feng Lao, which means that the, the young, when you grow up, you are taking care of your parents. And so the, the son, it's a male. It's a male responsibility that, so when you're an older person, an older man, taking care of your elderly parents, uh, you say, you know, Yang Er Feng Lao. And so I've been raised to take care of my parents. And I, that, it's the filial piety type of part of the culture. And I just, I, I, I just absolutely love how in this culture, elderly people are cared for and looked after and valued. And in my culture, uh, for the most part, older people oftentimes are not. Well said. What's your favorite destination within China? Uh, I, again, I spend most of my time in the tier one cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen. Uh, but uh, just like in where you come from and just like where I come from, the heart of the country is not in these tier one cities. The heart in the country is in the countryside. So I was just in Guizhou, which is in the south, which is one of the more poorer provinces. I was in Xinjiang a few years ago, um, in Gansu. I've been to about 15 different provinces. And so for me, it's going out into the countryside and it's just the simplicity of it. You roll back four or 500 years when you go into the countryside. You're still seeing oxes and you're still, you know, electrification hasn't reached everywhere. Uh, it's much better than it was, but the, the standard of living is very, very different. The way that they do things, the tiered farming, the mountains are all tiered. I mean, these go back centuries and how they do things in those techniques. And you realize, again, just the scope and scale of how big China is and how complex it is as soon as you go out. And by the way, you only have to leave Shanghai an hour or two outside and you've gone back, you know, centuries. Right. It's really so for me, it's really not a specific place, just not being in the big cities. If you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? Uh, I never leave China. I've been coming, I've been involved in China since I was 15 years old. I've been coming since I was 18 or 19. Uh, so in this particular case, I am actually physically leaving the country, but I'm never leaving. I'm always connected to it through my work and I will be back. So for me, it's a see you later. Uh, the see you later, the thing that I miss the most is the pace. I, you know, it is just everywhere else feels slow compared to Beijing and Shanghai. And that just that amazing energy that people have is just unbelievable. Uh, and that's specifically Shanghai compared to other cities too, right? It is specifically right? Shanghai. Yeah. But Beijing runs, Shenzhen runs at this pace. Uh, some of the big cities run at this pace. There's a China speed. There is definitely a China speed. I, I am wired for that. and Maybe I've been raised in it. Uh, but I go back to New York or London or some other places that are presumably fast and they feel very slow. So I love that. And it's just, it's kinetic. It's energizing. You get up going and out you go. Seven days a week. The Sundays here are as busy as the Monday. And, uh, you know, I love that. Uh, what I don't like, and every, there's always good and bad, the waiting in line thing has gotten much better. It's much better. Uh, it's a generational thing. I generally find people under 30 are very good at waiting in line, and people over 30 um, are not. And you have to remember that everything in China is about scarcity. This is a country of a billion four people, billion three people, where resources are in short supply, seats in schools are in short supply, everything's in short supply. So people have to fight with what they can get. Yeah, when, I, when, when you say that, it makes you think, yeah, the ones, the ones who did not push in in front of the queue are the ones who are not here anymore when you think about what happened in China's, in, in China's history. Historically, and that's just if you don't fight to get everything, 
uh, you're not going to get anything. And, and that's just a mindset. And, uh, and I understand where that comes from. But when you're, you know, when you're waiting to check out of a hotel and a guy just walks straight in front of you. And the, the amazing thing is he doesn't even see you. Yeah, it's not rudeness. It's actually. not actually yeah. rudeness. And you're just like, no, 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 no. I mean, <laughs> no. And, he, and then he looks at you and you're like, oh, he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And yeah. I think Westerners oftentimes misinterpret it right. as being direct rudeness. He was only looking at the checkout desk and he didn't see the two people or three people. Is there anything, even now, 30 years later, that still mystifies you about life in China? Every single day. I mean, I mean this place... Is the complexity of it never ever ceases to amaze me. And this is someone who speaks fluent Chinese too. Right? And again, the more you know, the less you know. Mm. And there's this great chart actually that was circulating on social media, and uh, the it, it shows age versus time being here. Okay, so the people who have been here, the young people who have been here for one year, all want to write the book on China, and they feel like they know it. And you can tell these the people who have just been here for one to three years. And then the longer you go here, the amount of time you've spent here, the less you actually know. So the X, Y axis, and it just keeps going down, 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 down. And I am extraordinarily humble about what I know and what I don't know. I feel that I know I have a graduate degree in Chinese foreign policy. I've spent 30 years here. I've been studying Chinese. I think I know a little bit compared to Westerners and other outsiders. And by the way, the Chinese themselves are not very well educated about their own country. A lot of the people who are raised in the cities don't know much about the countryside. Same, by the way, in my own country as well. It's too big for any one person to really grasp. And so, I mean, nobody can really understand it. There is no such thing, in my view, as a China expert. And I think when I hear your podcast, it also makes me think, well, and there's no such thing as one monolithic Chinese policy versus Africa versus anything, right? Because it's so complex. It is very complex. And so you need an enormous amount of humility. And I always want to make sure that humility comes out in everything that I do related to China. So people will, will I'll get accused by uh, China, by Chinese people saying, oh, this Westerner thinks he knows everything. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't know anything. I don't know. I mean, I'm not being just fake humble. I'm genuinely saying I am learning every single day. Confucius had this idea that says you only gain wisdom when you're 70. And I think there is some truth to that, that I still have another 20 years of trying to figure this out before I start piecing it all together. <laughs> okay, see you then. Uh, where is your favorite place to eat, drink, or just hang out? I mean, the, the, the perfect answer for this and the cliche answer would be some corner dive in the French concession that serves the best dumplings that you've ever heard of that nobody else knows and it's their secret spot that only this one foreigner seems to know. Uh, I won't give you that answer because, uh, to be honest with you, uh, you, know, you know, eating Eastern, Eastern Chinese food, so that is Shanghai Chinese food, actually is not my favorite. I got to be honest with you. It's greasy. It's, there's, I don't like the MSG and it's very salty. Uh, I prefer like Southern Chinese food, Yunnan, and then Eastern, uh, Western Chinese food. Uh, I love that. But this food I don't like. So I'm not going to give you, you know, that. I mean, so I actually like the French bistros and the Western food here in the French concession. Uh, I don't have a particular favorite. I mean, I do. I'm, listen, I'm a big Wagas fan. That's not a, uh, I mean, that's a very kind of mainstream pedestrian answer. But they do a good, they do a good service. You know what I'm going to say. But I, uh, I don't actually have a favorite dive or corner or hole in the wall in Shanghai. Uh, what is the best or worst purchase you've made in China? A Roomba. 
Oh, you've got one? I got one, and it broke within like two months. I would I mean, say it was the worst one. It was definitely the worst purchase I've ever made in China, bar <laughs> none. It was was the Roomba. I mean, and, you know, I mean, again, that's an international product, so it's not China's fault. In this. The problem is, is that I don't understand the complexity of the return policies, the maintenance policies, and the whole, like, all of that gets into a Byzantine kind of system, and uh, so I still have this broken... Roomba in my closet and I uh, the best purchase that I've made which not really a purchase is uh, is our little puppy Luna and Aww. she's from Shanghai Animal Rescue by the way you know props out to Shanghai Animal Rescue they are angels doing God's work there wow so uh, so she will be with us as a memory of Shanghai for a, hopefully a very long time but that is by far the best awesome we'll have a photo of her please yes okay next question what is your favorite WeChat sticker I have a lot I, I do. This was actually one of the harder questions, and uh, but I do like the slow clap. So I've got a couple slow clap stickers, and uh, just just to make fun of my friends who are you know either expressing pride or expressing something, and you're just you, you kind of give them a slow clap, which is uh, so yeah. So I'll say the slow clap. Excellent. Now the second hardest question: What's your favorite go-to song to sing at KTV? Okay, so this is um, th- this is quite revealing. I've spent a significant chunk of my adult life in Asia, Taiwan, Japan, Vietnam, China. Uh, I don't do KTV. I don't do it for the betterment of society, and I don't <laughs> do it because you don't want to hear me sing. And Oh, but I do. Oh, no, you really, <laughs> really don't. And I don't do it because for me either. So I, I actually am going to have to pass on this question simply because I don't do KTV. Okay. But I could do, you know, like... You know, I mean, shower singing, like, you know, you know, you know, okay. So if if it's not KTV, it's like the song in the shower. Oh, God, this is like the the cute, quaint dumpling place in the French concession. Your your whole character will be judged on whether how hip you are, if you on what song you sing, you know, you have to now just say what's on your mind now, because that's going to be your your true real self exposed. Oh, no. Oh, I, 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 you know, I'm. I'll say American Pie. My, my Miss American Pie went to the... Okay, Eric, so it's beautiful. There what's we go. what's See, wrong with you? This is why you don't want me... I mean, I'll be on that front line podcasting, but not singing. <laughs> the final question, which for you actually is quite interesting. What other China-related media or sources of information do you rely on apart from, of course, your own? Well, uh, I... The, the thing that I read every day uh, without missing it, and it's a long, meaty read, is the Sinocism newsletter by Bill Bishop. And anybody who's interested in China, particularly China-US, um, this is not optional. I mean, in these days and right now, so he's doing basically the same thing that I'm doing, which is you know filtering through, providing some perspective, staying in that middle ground space. Um, I'll also put out uh, Jeremy Goldcorn and Kaiser Guo with the Seneca podcast and Sup China. Those guys are doing the same thing. They're in all part of the same culture. We're all part of the same generation that was spent a lot of time here in the 90s, have some perspective on China. The, the thing that I really want to caution people is that there's a lot of haters on, on Twitter and things like that. I really think that when you consume information about China, it's increasingly important now to consider, do the people that you are reading and following speak Chinese? And in the old days, you didn't do it. And I I use the same standard. Could a Chinese person come to the United States and not speak a word of English, not read the New York Times, not understand anything that Trump is saying in his own language, and say that he really understands us? Impossible. And I think the same applies to China watchers outside looking in. If you cannot speak Chinese at a 
at a level sufficient to be able to understand what Xi Jinping is saying in a speech, even 80% of it, I just don't take you that credibly. I, you know, in my view. So that's been a, a line now. I know that's a snooty line for a lot of people. But again, this, we apply the same standard to us that you can't understand us if you don't speak our language. And there is no way you could understand American culture without speaking English. Great. Well, I can't think of a better place to end that conversation. Thanks so much, Eric. Um, that was great. And of course, the final question I ask everyone on this podcast is, in the next season, when I interview more people, I want to have someone who you recommend. So who would you recommend that I speak to next? I am going to recommend that you speak with a wonderful woman by the name of Zhao Huiling. And Zhao Huiling is a vlogger. Uh, she is based here in Shanghai. She was born in Ghana and has spent an enormous amount of time in Africa. And now she's dividing her time between Shanghai and different parts of Africa, Kenya, Ghana, Tanzania, and other places like that, and really bringing African life to Chinese uh, users on social media through vlogs and WeChat posts and things like that. And I just think she, in many ways, represents the future, which is expanding the China-Africa relationship beyond a, a political, economic one to a human and cultural one. Excellent. I can't wait to meet her. Thanks so much, Eric. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Eric. You can find him mostly on LinkedIn. Just search for him there under his name. Or he's also on Twitter at eolander, all one word. He also hosts the China Africa podcast, which I'm sure you can find on whatever platform you're listening to this on. This was the third recording in a row that I did in my apartment in Shanghai. And if I sounded a little on edge this time, it's because I was trying to impress Eric at the start of the podcast by offering him um, the tea which he'd requested. Only since we're not a tea drinking household, I needed to delve right into the back of my cupboard. Uh, and in so doing, I tipped over and smashed a whole bottle of vinegar all over the floor. So that wasn't the best start to the interview. Uh, luckily for me, Eric is a class act and he didn't ridicule me at all, which is definitely not what I would have done to him if the shoe was on the other foot. Anyway, nothing much else to say about this recording. Uh, there was the usual mention of the French concession, um, whose actual name is the former French concession. The reason I'm careful to mention this each time is because well, the Chinese don't really like this area being defined by the time it was under the influence of a foreign power, which is fair enough, I would say. I mean, I can't think of many countries that would wear that as a badge of pride. Mind you, even as I say that, I'm wondering whether that's correct, actually. So please tell me if I'm wrong. Anyway, even though the former French concession area does have a look and feel that's quite distinct from the rest of Shanghai, it's, um, it's only really called that by the foreigners. The other thing that uh, Eric mentioned, which might not have been clear, is the acronym KOL. He was talking about how people with a thousand followers on social media think that they're the next KOL. In case you're not into marketing lingo, this just means influencer. It stands for Key Opinion Leader. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs. Editing by Milo Di Prieto. Graphics by Danny Newell. China technical support by Alston Gong. If you like us, please rate and comment on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. It really does help, actually, with the algorithms um, in getting this podcast noticed by other people. So thank you very much, and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.